0: So before I take us through a sort of guided tour of Psalm 104 let me uh, give a bit of a preamble. Psalm 104 is doing several things at once. It's a song of praise. That's what it is most basically. It's a song of praise in which our awe at creation is meant to reinforce our awe at the creator. Psalm 104 is also a critique of the pagan creation myths of the cultures surrounding uh, ancient Israel. And Psalm 104 is effectively, you can think of it as the earliest commentary upon the Hebrew creation myth. Now, as William Lane Craig, the Christian philosopher, states, whereas 19th century scholars looked at ancient creation myths as a sort of crude proto-science, contemporary scholars tend more to the view that such stories were taken figuratively, not literally, by the people who told them. So as an analogy, think about these two different ways of thinking about London, uh, a London map and the Monopoly board. Both relate to reality, but they do so in rather different ways. So as Robert Siegel writes in his uh, very short introduction to myth in that wonderful Oxford Guide series, he says myths serve as guides to the world rather than as sort of scientific depictions of the world. So uh, another analogy, Um, we have on the one hand a more sort of, you could think of it as a more sort of scientific, accurate in that sort of sense, depiction of the London underground with this 3D image of the underground system there or part of it. And on the other hand, we have the the world-famous London Underground map, which is not an accurate scientific depiction of the London Underground. But I know which of these two images I would prefer to have with me when I'm trying to get across London. They're doing different things, and they're both relating to reality, but in different ways. So like a scientific theory, as we nowadays think of them, a myth relates to reality. But it does so in ways that can be accurate or inaccurate, but not in a scientific kind of a way. The truth claims that are being made in a myth need to be, first of all, carefully understood in the literary and historical context of the culture that produces that story and then carefully judged by appropriate ways of discovering the truth. And sometimes science is the appropriate way of discovering a truth about things, but it's not the only way of discovering truths about things. There are other ways of knowing truth, philosophical ways, experiential ways, and so on. So. Many scholars have noted that Psalm 104 heavily echoes the structure of Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, we have a depiction through the, the days of creation of realms or f- basic functions of creation on day 1 and 2 and 3. We have sort of the creation of the, the systems of time and weather and food. And on days four, five, and six, we have rulers or functionaries within those functions, of the sun and the moon, of the birds and the fish, of animals, and of course, finally, the creation of God's stewards, humankind, before God's Sabbath rest on day seven, which we are still inhabiting. As The Old Testament scholar John Walton puts it, the the cosmic functions are identified first and foremost, and then the functionaries are second tier, not as significant. So Genesis 1 doesn't present a historical sequence of material activities. It's talking about these functions of the world created by God. Theologian James May puts it this way. He says, in this way of thinking about things, the creation of the world is less an act of producing its material reality and more an achievement of control to produce order and function. And this functional emphasis explains, for example, why both Genesis 1 and Psalm 104 mention light and that God separated the light from the darkness before noting that the sun and the moon are the things that separate the day from the night. Genesis 2.2 talks about the, the earth being formless or unproductive and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. There's a a Hebrew poetic parallelism here. These two lines basically mean the same thing in different ways. As Walton puts it, the earth is described as not yet functioning as an ordered system. When an ancient text talks about how something functions in an ordered system, the system under discussion is inhabited by beings. And in the ancient Near East, those functions were focused on the the gods who had created everything to work for their benefit under their authority. Whereas in the Old Testament, God has no needs and focuses that functionality that he creates around, ultimately around people, his stewards. Here's another analogy to that opening of Genesis. It's like saying, there was this desert and uh, Lancelot Capability Brown, a famous landscape gardener, uh, owned this desert, but look what he did with it. He turned it from this arid, uh, useless desert into this wonderful sculpted uh, park. And if Capability Brown deserves praise for his landscaped gardens, Well, how much more does God deserve praise for forming his creation, taking it from unproductive chaos into a cosmos? And I use that word advisedly, of course, because cosmos means ordered beauty, hence Cosmopolitan magazine. So let's work our way through uh, Psalm 104, And occasionally I'll stop to give some background so that we can together understand the the imagery uh, from the the ancient context. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendour and majesty. The Lord Wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. Now, as Mays notes, um, his royal residence, God's royal residence on the waters, this is a, a manifestation or a picture of God's kingship uh, over them over the system of weather he makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind he makes the winds his messengers flames of fire or lightning his servants now these images uh, echo those that are applied to the Canaanite god Baal remember uh, Baal and the prophets of Baal and so on in the Old Testament Uh, The rider on the clouds, as he was called. And various other ancient Near Eastern deities as as well. These kind of images uh, of the weather were applied to. And the the, the writer of the psalm here is saying, no, it's not Baal who's in charge of the weather. It's Yahweh, it's God. You can go and uh, see some of these images of of Baal uh, holding his lightning bolt. Um, One's missing from the the statue there. uh, In the British Museum. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. This is not a denial of the Copernican uh, revolution in astronomy. The Bible portrays the cosmos as God's figurative throne, with earth as its figurative footstool. So Isaiah 66.1, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, okay? Now, God has established these such that his throne, that is, God's reign over reality, will not be, and the Hebrew word here is timawet, translated in the NOV as moved, but of course it also be translated as overthrown, or removed, or to totter, or shake, like that. So, the biblical image of being shaken often occurs in texts that describe the impotence of false pagan gods. So there's an implicit contrast here between the impotence of the false gods and the stable rulership of God being symbolized by the permanence, if you like, the regularity and so on of his figurative footstool, the earth. You covered it, the earth, with the watery deep, Tehom, Genesis 1-2. As with a garment, the waters stood above the hills or mountains, but at your rebuke the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. Mountains rose and valleys sank to the place that you assigned them. Uh, You might note that I'm departing a little from the NIV translation here. That's because I think the NIV translation is not as good as this one. You set a boundary that they, the waters, cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. Have a look at Genesis 1, 9 to 10 here. This is talking ultimately about uh, what uh, theologians call creation uh, ex nihilo. That is Latin for ...out of nothing or not out of anything. Like Genesis 1, Babylonian and Egyptian creation myths begin with the watery deep, the Tehom. And this Tehom symbolised, again, this unproductive, functionless chaos. Although it's a chaos containing the potential for a fruitful cosmos. The psalmist is here making clear that the deep originated from God... Making explicit the doctrine of creation ex nihilo that God created everything. He didn't just come along and shape something that was already there, independent of him, as in the pagan creation myths. He makes springs pour water into the ravines or wadis, it flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field, the wild donkeys quench their thirst, the birds of the sky nest by the waters, they sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers, the land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread to sustain their hearts. There's lots of parallels here uh, with Deuteronomy chapter 8. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nest, the stork has his home in the junipers. The high mountains belong to the wild goats and the crags are a refuge to the hyrax. He made the moon to mark the seasons and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness. It becomes night and all the beasts of the forest prowl and the lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then people go out to their work and their labour until evening. Now much of the language here is very similar to the 14th century BC Egyptian hymn to the sun by Arcanenton, who promoted the restriction of worship to the sun god, Aton. Uh, So actually placing the moon before the sun here in the psalm might be meant, uh, again, as a subtle critique, is to show that the sun doesn't have uh, precedence. Boyles notes that in contrast to that Egyptian hymn to the sun, the phrase, you bring darkness... Lays explicit claim to Yahweh's creation of darkness. It's not just the light that is the realm of the God, it is light and darkness. God created everything. Even in this realm, the scary realm of nighttime and those fearsome lions and creatures and so on, even in that time, God's uh, providence uh, still governs the world. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The land is full of your creatures. And there is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and Leviathan. which you formed, to frolic there. Now, if Grogan notes, Leviathan is an image used in the Old Testament of the dragon of Babylon and Canaanite mythology. It's a, 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 an image that's used as a symbol for, for evil powers in the world. If Look at Job 3.8. Grogan says that here it's probably meant the, the great whale with perhaps a hint that all existence is divinely created so that there are no uncontrollable powers. The pagan myths talked about Leviathan as this, this power of chaos that the gods had to overcome in order to establish the order and fruitfulness of the world. And in the biblical creation myths that uses that language but kind of demotes it in order to say, no, God is just in control. He didn't have to fight. In order to establish the fruitfulness and chaos of the world, he just said, let it be, and it was. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their spirit or breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit breath, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground, the land. God is not only the originator, but the sustaining cause, the upholder of the existence of nature, moment by moment. God isn't like the, 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 the watchmaker God of deism who created the cosmos before leaving it on its own to run down. God is more like, if you like, Stradivarius, who created an instrument that he then plays and interacts with. Predators, beasts of the earth, in terms of Genesis 1, 24, 25, the natural cycle of death and new life are a part of creation for which the psalmist is offering praise to God. That is, death and predation, we now know, are essential features of the ecosystem. For example, when organisms die, they return needed nutrients to the soil. Without predators, We know that populations of certain species would just explode and then overeat what they eat on and then starve to death, and then the population collapses, uh, pushing other species to extinction and so on. So, you need the predators to keep everything in balance and keep it all going. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. Lots of imagery here from uh, the Exodus account in Exodus 19. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. Do you ever stop to to think not only that your day-to-day actions might be uh, disapproved of or approved of by God, but that you might do things just because you think God might enjoy them? But may sinners vanish from the land and the wicked be no more. One theologian comments, the poet longs for a time when God's joy in his creature, in his creation, and the creature's joy in his maker uh, will unite in perfect harmony. Uh, As to how that's going to happen, that's something only the New Testament reveals, of course. Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord. And the Hebrew word here is hallelujah, Yahweh. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So while the psalm takes considerable delight in Yahweh's creation, it prescribes the primary object of our rejoicing, of course, to be the Lord himself. The creation must lead us to the creator, not lead us away from him. We mustn't idolise the creation, as uh, Paul talks about in the beginning of Romans. I want to end with a quote by uh, the Old Testament theologian John Walton which uh, relates very much to our creation care theme and pulling out an application here uh, from this psalm. He says when the cosmos is viewed in secular terms it's hard to persuade people to respect it unless they can be convinced that it's in their own best interests to do so. It's easy to think of it as only a resource to be exploited. We even refer to natural resources. But when we adopt the biblical perspective, it is no longer possible to look at the world in secular terms. It's not ours to exploit. We do not have natural resources. We have sacred resources. It is this theology that becomes the basis for our respect of the world and the ecological sensitivity that we ought to nurture. And all the people said, Hallelujah!